Well, as we sang about and worshipped about, we have a God who went to great extremes at the cross to show us the great extremes of our rebellion, to show us the great extremes of the consequences of the of that rebellion. But the backdrop to all of that is that he wanted to go to great extremes to show us the great extremes of his patience. And when you reflect on how God worked through Jesus, and as we study Ezekiel, how God does the same thing through Ezekiel, I think God calls us to repeat the process. God calls us to help people. And he wants us to go to great extremes to help people see the great extremes of their rebellion, the great extremes of the consequences of that rebellion, but more than that, the great extremes of his patience with us. And God is going to do that in Ezekiel chapter 3 today in a pretty powerful way. God's actually going to use four visual aids to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel to communicate to the people. What we've learned so far is that Nebuchadnezzar has come in and has conquered the uh, kingdom that was divided to the north and the south. And he has done one attack, which is pretty brutal, and transported Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Did another one with uh, Ezekiel, who's now hanging out in the area of Babylon. But there's still another attack to come with severe consequences if the people don't listen. So God uses four visual aids to try and get the people's attention, to warn them, to woo them, and I think to teach us how we can warn or how we can be warned before we travel on paths that end up in difficult circumstances. The first visual aid he uses is that of a watchman. If you've uh, ever seen Monty Python, you, you remember that watchman where the uh, freshman uh, ha, ha, is uh, talking? So imagine sort of a, an old turret, but this is actually a, uh, an artifact they found of what an old watchtower would look like. And God is going to use the metaphor that immediately Ezekiel would have understood, but we might not. So imagine a watchman is someone who walks up into that watchtower and he could see danger coming in advance. So a watchman's job was to tell people in advance of things that were coming. And God says, Ezekiel, I want you to be a watchman. And as you walk up in the tower metaphorically, I want you to lovingly warn people of their extreme rebellion in what they're doing in their life right now. Here's how he says it in the next part of the verse. He says, now it came to pass that at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, remember it's his favorite phrase, son of dust, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning for me. Now, keep in mind, he's not saying go warn all the Babylonians, though they were doing wicked things. God specifically says, I want you to speak to the people I'm calling you to speak to, to warn them that you see more danger coming if they continue on the path they're on. Then he says, by the way, I'm going to hold you accountable for whether or not you obeyed and did what I said. When I say to the wicked... So again, he, the word wicked is going to be his favorite phrase here. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning. When I tell you specifically, tell that wicked person that bad things are happening, and you don't give them warning and say, you shall surely die, nor do you speak and warn the wicked man of his wicked way to save his life. I'm doing this to try and save his life, to keep him from falling off the cliff, to keep him from going into that circumstance. But when you don't warn the people that I direct, directed you to warn... That same wicked man is going to die because you didn't warn him. But I'm going 
to take his blood and require it at your hand. What? When I told you to warn somebody, when I told you to woo somebody, when I told you to step in and help a daughter, a parent, a friend, heading toward addiction, about to make a bad financial decision, about to step into a really bad circumstance, you're saying, oh my goodness, the way you're handling your work right now is really affecting your relationship with your kids. When I direct you to share with somebody that the path they're on is, is, is dangerous and you don't obey that prompting, I'm going to hold you responsible for what happens. Wow. Wow. Now, you're not accountable to the results, whether or not they return or not, but you are accountable to respond, to obey the promptings I give you. And he goes on. Yet, if you warn the wicked, so you do what I ask you to do, and they don't turn from their wickedness, nor from their wicked way, and he dies in his sin, but you have delivered your soul. You're not responsible for the results, just the resolve of being courageous enough to love someone enough to warn them when I prompt you to, to head in the right direction. Now again, when a righteous man, in general doing good things, but he begins to turn and sort of head in the wrong direction, he turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, which is a word for sin or, or, or waywardness, and I lay a stumbling block before him to kind of woo him or keep him from, from falling off the whole cliff, and he shall die because you did not give him warning when I told you to. And he's going to be dying in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, and his blood I will require again at your hand. Why in the world is he so strong on this? Because if you're like me, even when God prompts you to have a conversation, there's a fear that comes up. Oh, I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. I don't want to get involved. It's not my issue. Whatever it is. And in that fear, you say, well... Somebody else will do it. Uh, they'll face it their own way. But God says, no, no, no. I want you to know that if, if I prompt you and you don't respond, I'm going to hold you accountable for that lack of responsiveness to me. And I think he's trying to come against the way in which we are motivated often by fear, not to deal with that issue, not to address that personnel problem, not to look at the issues going on and say, I've got to step into this and be more, more courageous. He goes on. He says, nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteousness should not sin, and he does not sin, good news. He will surely live because he took the warning. Also, you have delivered your own soul by coming against the fear that was keeping you from obeying me. Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there. Really interesting, because remember, he's in Babylon. God appeared in, in Jerusalem. God existed back in, 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 the, in the Holy Land. But now God is manifesting or, or, or revealing himself to Ezekiel, here in Babylon, to say, I can work in any circumstance. You're living in a culture that is antagonistic toward your values, antagonistic toward your God, but I'm still working here. And I want you to be a watchman to warn the people. And look what the righteous man does. Here's sort of the model. The righteous man hears a warning and he takes the warning. I think the principle is this. Number one, leaders warn people. We care enough about people to warn them if they're in danger. Secondly is that lovers warn people. Because I think, well, I love them too much to hurt their feelings. And, but he says, no, no, if you love people, a friend, a neighbor, and God prompts you to, lovers warn people because you care about them. 
But it's not just about giving warnings. I think the question I ask here from this part of the passage is, how well do you take warnings from your spouse? Mm. From your kids? Mm. From your boss? From your employees? A lot of us are truth talkers. We're good at maybe giving warnings. We're not so good at taking warnings. Somebody comes up and says, yeah, I've noticed something. Hey, have you, do you think the way you handled yourself in that meeting? Hey, you know, for the last 10 years, I've really felt like, do you immediately get defensive? <laughs> well, you're just being insensitive. You're just being disrespectful. Well, somebody got up on the wrong side of the coffin. Are you immediately defensive? Or do you take warnings? Because here's what the righteous man does. The righteous man says, I am probably blinded to my own issues. And God, I want to be open to whatever area comes to take warnings, to be teachable, to be moldable in your presence. It's easier to point out other people's issues, but to be a righteous man means to look in the mirror. Last week I was watching a, a, a video conference a couple weeks ago of uh, the CEO of Ritz-Carlton. And he was warning leaders about the dangers of cost-cutting at the expense of good quality services. He told the story about moving into Ritz-Carlton. They had a brand new uh, hotel. And as they were moving in, they were committed to have the best customer service. After the first month, reviews came in fantastic, except related to the morning breakfast service. So he pulled in the, uh, the service. He goes, we've got a problem. We're not meeting people's expectations. You've got to fix this. Gave him a warning. A couple months went by. Still the same problem. He said, well, it's not us. Maybe it's the kitchen. So they pulled in the kitchen. We're getting bad reviews. What's going on? We're, we're getting the food out on time. All right. Well, then let's start timing. And sure enough, the time between the order and people getting their food was way too long. I said, well, it's the elevators. Paul called in the elevator people. What's wrong with the elevators not going fast? I say, time the elevators. They're, they're going fast. They're going the right speed. So then they said, well, let's have somebody check out the elevators during that time slot of 6 a.m. To, to 9. So somebody literally sat in the elevator and timed it. And what they realized is that during that window of time, the laundry services would come up to one level, would take a chair, block the elevator door. They would go and put one new set of linens in and take the other one off simultaneously. So he calls in the linen people. What is wrong here? You guys, for two years now, we've had bad customer service because you guys are propping the door open with, 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 with a chair. Why are you doing that? Because we only have two sets of sheets. One for laundry and one for the bed. So we're simultaneously doing the laundry services and we're putting on the new sheets to be prepared. Why do we only have two sheets? None of the other hotels have two sheets per bed. Well, because two years ago, Hortz, that's his name, you told us to cut costs by only having two sheets per room. And he said, I caused the problem. By cutting some costs at the short end, I caused two years of dissatisfied customers at the back end. And I was so busy warning everybody else, I never even thought to look in the mirror and said, what did I do to cause this? So the watchman. How do we respond to God's prompting to be a watchman? And how do we respond to other people speaking to our life to be a watchman as well? How do we look in the mirror? Now, the second metaphor or visual aid he uses is actually shockingly hilarious and funny, too. He says, second visual aid, I want you to use your tongue. And in using your tongue, I want you to take a different approach to the people. I want you to get very, very personal. And in a world where everyone's a cog in a wheel and everybody's a number, one of the best extremes the people of God can have is to be very, very personal. 
It's one of the heartbeats of our church, that the bigger we get, the more we're committed to taking a very personal approach. And you see that right here in Ezekiel. Because God's going to say, I want you to take a personal approach, and here's the most important thing. You need to learn what not to say. What do you mean? He says, well, I arose and I went out to the plain for God wanted to speak to me. And behold, the glory of the God stood there in Babylon. God's glory showed up in Babylon. The same glory that had appeared before in the river Shabar. And I fell on my face. Oh, God, you're here. You haven't left us. And the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. He stood me up and spoke with me. And he said, new approach. I want you to go inside your house. You, O son of man, son of dust, because if you keep preaching out on the street corners, if you keep talking out in public, you're going to be in trouble. They're going to tie you up with ropes, they're going to bind you, and you're going to be in big trouble. So, instead of preaching on the street corners, that's not real effective anymore, I want you instead to go into your house. And what commentators tell us is that in those days, leaders would come into the home of a prophet to get advice. And it seems to be that instead of preaching to the masses where different people are at different places spiritually and some people are semi-receptive, some people are hostile, by being available in his own home, Ezekiel could take a very personal approach. Folks would come into his house and he could adapt his methods, he could adapt his conversations to the people he was interacting with. It was very, very personal and very, very private. That this will be the best way you can interact with the people during this time. And so that's what he does. He takes a radically personal approach here. Then he says, however, when somebody comes to talk to you, you're going to be tempted to address something. Look at that gossip problem. Look at that anger problem. You think he just told him he's supposed to warn people. But remember, he told him, warn the people I tell you by telling them what I tell you to say. He says, now here's the temptation, though, Ezekiel. There's going to be somebody who comes into your room and you're going to be tempted to say something that you want to address, but it's not what I want you to address. Or you're going to want to say something, but you're not going to say it the way I want you to say it. So I want to teach you how to not say things unless I tell you to. That is the most important thing in influencing. Influencing someone for Christ, you need to know what not to say as much as what to say. In influencing your kids, you need to know as much what not to say as what to say. And look what he says with his tongue. As you're in that house, somebody will come in and they're going to start talking. And I'm going to make the tongue of your nest stick to the your nest. What? I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so you'll be mute and not be able to rebuke them. Not be able to rebuke them? You just told me you're going to hold me accountable for not rebuking them. When I prompt you and when I tell you. And this is so interesting, this dichotomy, but it's so true in relationships. We are called to rebuke and warn people. But if God doesn't prompt you, if God's not working in that person's heart, you may want to rebuke them. God might say they're not ready for rebuke yet. So God's saying, you need to discern my spirit's movement and when is the best time for this conversation? What is the best way to have this conversation? If I tell you to do it, you need to obey. But there's a lot of times you're going to be tempted to say something because somebody's got to put them in their place. Somebody's got to tell it how it is. And when you're tempted to do that, you don't have enough self-control to stop on yourself. So as you go to talk, I'm going to make... Because you got to learn... What not to say. And man, isn't there a good lesson there for us. I remember at a staff meeting years ago at my church, first church in Atlanta, and our senior pastor was Scottish. And he had just gone to visit a couple who got some really bad news, terminal news about uh, cancer. And as he returned to staffing that day, 
We said, boy, how's the couple doing? He says, oh, they're doing, they're doing pretty well, but these are mature believers. And as they're wrestling with cancer, I just, I just cannot believe that mature believers are, are questioning the goodness of God. I just don't understand it. I don't understand how mature believers, faced with difficulty, could question God's goodness. And we're all thinking, it's cancer. So there's this awkward moment of like sort of emotionally uh, unaware leader, pastor, friend. And so, can you believe it? And we're all like, who's going to say the next word? And our associate pastor, a friend of mine, Kevin, goes and breaks the silence. He says, hey, Peter. Yes? Hey, if I'm ever sick and in the hospital, could you not come visit me? <laughs> and oh, we burst out laughing, man, because... Sometimes when somebody's grieving or going through difficulty, the most important thing we know is what not to say, to be a good listener, to just be with somebody in their pain. And unless God prompts you, not get ahead of his prompting, because you've got to join God in what he's doing. You cannot force God's work on somebody. You can join him in the work he's already doing. It's actually one of the reasons, you know, we do sign for small groups this time of year. If you're interested in being a small group, I think we had over 800 people in groups last year. We follow both these principles in small group. Very, very personal. And we try and also put people in groups so they know what to say and what not to say. Because if you come into a group with an expectation, it's going to be 35 minutes of prayer. Oh, it's going to be great. Somebody else comes in, it's going to be 45 minutes of Bible study. Somebody else comes into a group and they say, I don't even know if I believe in the Bible. Can you see the explosion about to happen? So as we put groups together, we try and find where people are spiritually and put them in a group that helps them with their next step. So instead of just Tuesday night groups, Thursday nights, Friday night groups, we have a unique challenge as a church because over 50% of our attenders don't believe in Jesus, God, or the Bible yet. Well, that's a problem. That's, that's a challenge. So how do we get people in groups that want to help friends along who are a few steps behind? How do we have other types of groups that say, I want to go deep, deep, deep into theology? Well, I love the homework. Somebody else is like, I don't want any homework. I like to make some, you know, some friends and a little bit of Bible study. So just know, as we sign up for groups, sometimes we go a little slower because we're really trying to take this personal approach to get the right people in the right group for where they are in their spiritual journey. It comes right out of here, Ezekiel. All right, third visual aid. I love this one. We talked about this a few weeks ago when I did the narrative sermon. The third visual aid is green army men. At least that would be the modern equivalent. Green army men. God is going to tell Ezekiel to take a clay tablet and draw on it an outline of Jerusalem. And they would have immediately recognized that. So he takes this tablet, and he begins to carve out an outline of what Jerusalem looks like. Now, I don't know if he's doing this inside of his home, or at this point God's prompted him to go back out to an area and talk to a group of people. Whatever it is, there's people watching. He draws this tablet, and people are gathered around. And God says, I'm going to use extreme creativity and extreme ingenuity to warn and woo my people. So when you think about our church, how we use lights, how we use music, our two different service design, people come to our exploring service sometimes and go, I don't need this kind of entertainment. Well, Ezekiel did one chapter after another. This guy is a one man teaching seminar on how to find incredibly creative, innovative ways to woo and draw people in. If the tongue wasn't enough and the watchtower wasn't enough, wait to see what God tells him to do here. And I think the, the message for us is, are we willing to go to great extremes to use creativity and ingenuity to draw people and get their attention? Look what he says. Son of man, take a clay tablet, lay it before you, portray on it the city. 
Lay siege against it. Build a siege wall against it. Heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it. Place battering rams against it. And so Ezekiel basically got the equivalent of green army men. If we don't repent, it was bad when Nebuchadnezzar came last time. He's bringing his soldiers back. He's going to build up a battering ram. He's going to come and he's going to lay siege against our temple. Right now the temple's still here. It's not going to be soon. If we don't turn back to God, battering rams are coming in this way. Soldiers are coming in this way. And he's just basically acting out this bam, bam. Why couldn't he just read the Bible? Why is he having to get so dramatic? Because he's trying to say, God doesn't want you to go through this pain. God's trying to rescue this from this. And then he goes on. He says, and then I want you to set between the city you built and where you're going to stand, I want you to put an iron pan or an iron wall to represent that right now God will hear your prayers. Right now God will hear your repentance. Right now God can't wait for you to turn. But there's a time coming. And it's coming soon. That it will be no longer time for repentance. It will be time for discipline and consequences. And if you don't turn now, if you don't repent now, a time is coming that you will pray to God when it's all being destroyed and God will not hear your prayers. It will be like an iron wall. So take the opportunity now to repent. See, there is a big, big, big difference between repenting for telling God to go away God, I didn't prioritize you. I think you were 10th on the list, 100th on the list. God, we we swapped you with other gods, the God of comfort, the God of lust, the God of success, the God of busyness. There's a big difference between saying, oh my goodness, we are so off base, God. I want to repent, God, for telling you to go away. That's what's broken in my heart. There's a big difference between repenting for telling God to go away and repenting because you want your consequences to go away, isn't there? Everybody prays and repents to have their consequences go away. God's saying, there's going to be a coming time that if you don't repent for telling me to go away, I will not listen when you want your consequences to go away. That's exactly what happens. That's a challenge for me, because how often does it take deep consequences before God gets my attention? And then things get going a little bit better, and I never got to the root of the issue. Are you really prioritizing God in your life? Is he really the number one thing? Our fourth illustration builds on that. And the illustration, the visual aid, is that of a flip-flop. You'll find out why it's called a flip-flop in a moment. The question I think we need to ask as we see what God's going to do through Ezekiel here, he says, Ezekiel, no longer do you need to use visual aids. In this case, I want you to be the visual aid. So here's the question. Will you inconvenience yourself for others? Well, what do you mean by inconvenience? And who am I inconvenience myself for? Right? Those are questions I'd have. And what if God said, I want you to inconvenience yourself for people that I've already labeled as wicked, 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 wicked. How, how much do you inconvenience yourself for wicked people? Your enemies. People who disagree with you politically. People who disagree with you spiritually. God is going to call Ezekiel to inconvenience himself in shocking ways to reorder his life, his patterns, and his lifestyle for the sake of wicked people. I have a friend who, a friend of my son's actually, came up to me about three or four years ago and was really struggling spiritually, asking me all the hard questions. 
I'm not sure if I want to be a Christian anymore. And we just had great conversations. I tried to give my best shot. Almost weekly, we're having these tough conversations on everything from the problem of evil and everything else. And I remember one day I was sort of exhausted trying to answer the question. I said, well, let me tell you this. I hope I'm giving you some somewhat decent questions. But here's what I hope even more. That you have watched how I live. That even if I can't solve all your problems, you've seen what kind of a friend I've been to you. You've seen how I've reordered my life to help you with things in your life. You've seen how I've been generous to you. You've seen what kind of a father I've been to your your best friend. You've seen how I've interacted with my wife. I hope that the life I'm living has been a visual aid that even if you can't figure out all the details, you want what I have. And you've seen me make mistakes. I hope you've seen me own up to it and apologize to you. I apologize to you several times. We went out jet skiing this week. He said to me as we were driving along the jet ski, he goes, Chad, it's been four years now. He says, I'm wondering if God's calling me into ministry. I thought, wow. I don't know if he is or not, but that God would use me as a visual aid to take somebody who is at this place and potentially get to this place. It's so exciting to inconvenience yourself to help people spiritually. I had one of the greatest compliments in my life about three weeks ago. One of our caretakers for Quinn, who started spiritually seeking here at our church and then became a caregiver for Quinn the last couple of years. They just moved. Right after the service, it was her last service here, she came and met me right here. She said, Chad, i got to tell you something. You were my pastor for many years and helped me spiritually, but then I got to see you in your home. Mm-hmm. She said, I've never seen anyone live such a consistent life between their personal and professional life. I think it was the greatest compliment I've ever heard. doesn't mean I'm perfect at home, but it was. there's no duplicitousness. You have been a visual aid to the grace of God. Well, that's what God's going to call Ezekiel to do in a pretty unbelievable way. Talk about a guy who inconveniences himself for the sake of others. He says, all right, now that you've got the pan there and the people there, I want you to then lay on your left side facing the city. And I want you to lay on your left side one day for every year that they disobeyed in the northern kingdom. All right, Lord, I'll do it. That can't be too tough. How many years, Lord? How many years did the northern kingdom disobey you? A day for every year. That should be easy. 390 years. 390 days I want you to lay there inconveniencing yourself in order to get the attention of wicked people. 390 days you will be the visual aid. And you will demonstrate my patience. They'll say, why 390 days? Because God has been so patient. He's waited 390 years for you to repent. He so doesn't want you to face the consequences. He's waited 390 years hoping you'd come back, hoping you'd prioritize him. That's how gracious and wonderful and patient this God is. So he lays there for 390 days warning people of what's to come. Prophesying against the city. We gotta repent or Nebuchadnezzar's coming back. We're gonna lose the temple. We're gonna lose the glory. And that 390th day, he must have gotten up and like, oh my God. Most commentators think he got up early in the morning and left early at night. Because every day he seems to restock himself with food. We'll talk about that in a moment. At day 390, he's like, oh God, I've been faithful. God, I've done what you asked. Oh, now what, Lord? Well done, son of dust. Now we need to talk about the southern kingdom. 
I want you to lay on your right side one day for every year they disobeyed. Oh, I remember Jehoshaphat and Josiah did some good stuff. I hope it's less than 300. Let me try and guess what it is. 40 days. So for 40 days, because the southern king of Judah had rebelled for 40 years, I want you to lay on your right side for 40 more days. Again, calling my people back. God's been so patient. 390 years plus 40. God's been so patient, but his patience is about to run out. We're about to move from, from rebellion. Not grace, not mercy. We're about to lead rebellion and consequences are coming. People, come back to God, come back to God, come back to God. But even that was enough inconvenience. Over a year of his life, inconveniencing himself for these people. He says, I want you to be a visual aid of how bad it's going to get. Because when Nebuchadnezzar comes, it's not just the destruction of the temple. It's not just the loss of life. There's going to be no water. There's going to be no food. So every day while you sit there, 390 days and 40 days, you are to take 20 shekels of food, barely enough to survive, and that's all you're going to eat all day long. And you're going to starve to death during that year, or, or almost death. You're going to just be you know, a skeleton. So you're going to be a literal visual aid of starvation to show the people, if we don't re- return, if we don't change, we're going to look like Ezekiel. Ooh. And I want you to be a visual aid of dehydration. Every day you get one hen, one-sixth of a hen of water to drink. Just enough water in that hot sun to barely survive. Because I want the people to see this is how bad it's going to get if we don't turn back to God. And you're thinking, wow, that guy went through a lot. He did. But that wasn't the end of it. God says, I want you to demonstrate also the great extremes of their rebellion, the great extremes of the consequences, the great extremes of my patience that I would wait this long. Show them what starvation is going to look like. Show them what the, fa- what the lack of water is going to look like. But there's also going to be a fuel shortage. And you need to be a visual aid of that as well. You see, in those days, if you were going to cook your little cake or your barley, you would actually take hay. The problem with burning hay is you burn it, it's gone. So in order to have the hay burn longer, you would take the hay, you'd go out into the field and you would find some manure, shovel it in, and you'd mix the manure in with the cow dung, in with the straw, and that way the fuel would last longer to cook your food. But God says, I want my people to know that things are going to get so bad when Babylon comes that there's going to be no food, which means no cattle, which means no fuel. So while you're laying there on your side, cooking your food, you are not to cook it with straw, with cow dung, like usually happens. Well, how will I cook it, Lord? You are to use your own human waste oh, to cook your food during this time. Because when Babylon takes you out of, out of the northern southern kingdom and you end up in Babylon, you're going to have to eat food that is defiled Babylonian Gentile food. So you might as well get used to eating defiled food now because that's what's coming. At this point, Ezekiel's like, no, Lord, please. I don't want to eat food cooked over my own waste. I've spent my whole life trying to be kosher, trying to be pure, trying to be connected to you. I've spent my whole life devoted to this. Please don't make me do that. And again, we see God's kindness. He could have said, I told you, I'm God. You're Ezekiel. You're the son of the dust mite. You're the son of the dirt clod. Do what I said. He could have said that. But again, we see the patience and kindness of God. Because after telling him to drink a little water, eat a little barley cake, one-sixth of a hint of water, telling him to use the fuel of human waste in his sight, he says, I've never defiled myself. I've never done this. Please, 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 no. God is so kind and so gracious. He says, okay, 
All right. I will give you cow dung then. Did you think you'd ever be happy with cow dung? I'm giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. But he said to me, Son of man, this is not going to be a good visual aid. So I'll do it, because I want to be gracious and kind to you. But it's not going to be a good visual aid how bad it's going to get. There will be no options when Nebuchadnezzar comes. So you tell the people that. I was gracious and kind, and I want people to know my kind, gracious heart. But this will be a terrible visual aid. They're going to lack bread. They're going to lack water. They're going to be dismayed with one another. And they're going to waste away as your body is wasted away because of their sins. Now, look at the great extremes God has gone to in these this short little chapter and a half. Four visual aids. And those visual aids, I think, are calling to you and I. Will we do the same? Will we remember the great extremes Jesus did for us, and will we repeat that for others? See, Jesus is the ultimate watchman who saw us on a, on a pathway to destruction, and he came and, and he came to earth. He actually came from heaven where he could see it all. He came to earth to tell us, I'm the watchman. Come to me. Find forgiveness in me, or bad things are going to happen. He was the one who had his ultimate tongue held, because when he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He knew what to say and what not to say. He could have talked his way out of the crucifixion. He did not lack debating skills. But he kept his mouth shut so that you and I would know the great patience and deliverance of God. And he is the one that on that cross, as he was, def- as he was killed and murdered and mutilated, that he took on all the forces of evil. It says he disarmed the armies of darkness in those days. He put them on public display and showed that he was victorious. And he ultimately is the one who flip-flopped. They were beating him. It wasn't 390 days and 40. They whipped him and there was no meat left to whip him. So they had to flip him over to whip him again. And he did that to show you the great extremes of your rebellion and mine. The great extremes and cost and consequences of our self-centeredness and our unthankfulness and our critical spirits. All those things that we do every day and we don't even realize there's consequences to it. Jesus is being beaten that bad to show you those consequences. But in the midst of it, to see the great extremes of God's patience for you. He cannot wait for you to come to him. So invest in your spouse. You're saying, oh, they don't deserve it. No, they don't. But you remember what God did for you and you repeat the process for them. Oh, I don't want to keep waiting on my prodigal son. Don't think about what they've done. How long did God wait for you? Keep pursuing your son. Keep pursuing your friend who's unconvinced. Keep praying for your friend who you don't think will ever come to Christ. Keep waiting. Play the long game the way God played it for you. Remember what our God has done for us and repeat the process that you will know how to warn in appropriate ways and you know how to be warned to experience the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what an incredible teacher Ezekiel is and so much we have to learn about your heart toward him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for being with us today. Uh, if you came, uh, if you're new to the church, uh, we'd love to put a name with the face. The third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hi. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. And we'll see you next week as we continue in Ezekiel chapter 4. Thanks again.